for On my way out the door this morning, um, my daughter and my son told me, you better say hello to me this morning on the TV. So, hi, <laughs> Marine Hebron, good morning. I love you. Uh, and like I said on my post and my email, parenting, in parenting there's this really interesting phenomenon when you're parenting children. Uh, my two-year-old son, Hebron, uh, as many of you know, he has a, a really large appetite, just like his father. Uh, he'll eat a couple of waffles for breakfast, three eggs, two pieces of bacon, a glass of milk, and say, more. Um, you know, we, we take him out sometimes, and people will, will say, wow, that is a big two-year-old. You know, and I just smile smugly, and I say, yep, that's my boy. Um, but then, you know, whenever mommy or I find him and he's drawn on the wall with the, the crayon or the marker, you know the immediate reaction that comes out of your mouth is when you see them, you say, your son, not mine, your son. See, we take credit oftentimes for the good, but we, we oftentimes blame others for the bad things that we see. Same goes for sports. I mean, think about it. You interview, uh, you see a guy interviewed after a win. On, on the football field or whatever. Uh, and they'll say something like, yeah, we had a lot of talent and we just worked really hard and we kept at it and, and we won because we were great. And then at the, end of the, at the end of the game, if they lose, they say, well, you know, it just wasn't our lucky day. We all have this uh, thing where we take credit for the good, but we oftentimes shift the blame away for the bad. You know, in good leadership, we actually do the opposite. Good leadership bears the blame when things go wrong and shifts praise to others when it goes well. I mean, this is what I've learned in four years from learning from Pastor Manuel, that he does this well. But it seems more often than not that our leaders ignore good leadership practices and they take credit for the good themselves and shift blame away for the bad. This is a human phenomenon that we find. And in our passage here in James chapter 1, it deals with this universal problem. While the first part of James uh, discusses standing firm through external trials and tests, verse 12 becomes a pivot. And it now urges us in this pivot to stand firm, not against external trials and tests, but now the following verses, 13 through 18, urge us to stand firm against internal temptations to sin. And so there's three points that we're going to look at. Uh, basically, first, it's what we ought not to do in order to stand, what we should do, and how we do it in standing fast. What we don't do, what we do do, and what we should, how we do it. So first, what we ought not to do. See, great blessing here. Is, is for us, is for you and me, if we stand fast against temptation and we don't shift the blame away to others or to God. You see, in this passage, it starts out in verse 13, talking about how God is not tempted. Verse 13, we look at it, it says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. See, James asserts very emphatically, God cannot be tempted with evil. God is the infinite, eternal, unchanging one in his being. He is not like the pagan deities that would just fly off in passions of rage, of anger, of lust, of all these things. He's unchanging 
in His being. And that means our unchanging God is unchanging in His goodness. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who is love, who was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen and amen. This is our God. He is love and His goodness. Who He is never changes. And so, of course, He cannot be tempted by sin. Nor is it possible for Him to tempt anyone. So why would we ever even claim that we are being tempted by God? Why would we ultimately shift away the blame to God? See, ever since Adam and Eve, this has been part of who we are. Blame shifting. Think about the Bible context. The crafty serpent comes to Eve with Adam beside her and tempts her to eat the fruit. And she does, and she gives some to Adam who is with her, and their eyes are opened. And they see that they are naked, and they are ashamed, and they are guilty. And when the presence of God walks in the garden, they hide. And God speaks to Adam, and he says in Genesis 2.11, Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And you remember what Adam's first words are that come out of his mouth. The woman whom you gave to me. The woman who you gave to me. She gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. See what he's saying. God, she tempted me. She's to blame. But really, you're to blame. God. You're the one. The insinuation is that God is the one who tempted Adam. Forget about the the crafty serpent who's right there who Adam was supposed to deal with. You see, blame shifting to others and blame shifting to God ultimately is as old as the human race. It's been with us from the beginning. And it goes down deep inside us. Let me give you a real life example. So, um, I know of a little girl and a little boy who, uh, who were recently told by their father not to eat the cookie dough that was in the refrigerator. And if they did, they wouldn't get any cookies. Uh, so one quiet morning, you know those mornings that are much too quiet with small children in the house, one quiet morning, the little girl, she cries out, Daddy, look! And so the father of those two children runs into the kitchen and The little minions, both of them have cheeks full of cookie dough. And the little girl cries out uh, with her mouth covered, look what he did. He got into the fridge and he's eating the cookie dough. Covering the cookie dough coming out of her mouth. And the boy with all of uh, mouth gaping of food, you know, he just, you know, comes out of his mouth and He points to the girl and says, she's the one that opened it. This is one of those like hashtag parenting moments. And it's so familiar with all of us who've had children. Is that you might as well have named these two children Adam and Eve. See, blame shifting, it is as old as the human race. And it goes down deep into the core of all of us. So why do we shift blame so very much and say that we're being tempted by God and by others, it's because of our guilt and our shame. Like Adam and Eve's nakedness in the garden, one to deflect it. Shame. There's a song 
called Shame, and the chorus goes like this. Shame, boatloads of shame, day after day, more of the same. Blame, please lift it off, please take it off, please make it stop. Blame, please lift it off, please take it off, please make it stop. And we're chronic blame shifters for this because we have this shame, boatloads of it. And we cry out for our blame to be lifted off, for somebody to take it off of us. And the saddest thing of all is that we try to unload our boatloads and boatloads of shame and our blame onto others' people. We shift it to others. And you know that if you do this in your marriage or your friendships, all you will do is just heap more and more shame and blame. When we stand here pointing fingers at each other, in our marriages, our friendships, our church, our broken communities, all we do is sink into our shame. But there is astounding, incredible good news for us chronic blame shifters. It is that the good God of justice who is never tempted by sin became a man. Jesus, the God-man who was tempted but never even inclined towards sin. He himself, having nothing to be ashamed of, he was publicly shamed naked upon the cross. And he bore our boatloads of shame. And blameless, Jesus was the one lifted on the cross and took off our blame. He shifted our blame from us to himself. He made the blame stop for all of you who are united to Christ by faith. And this is why Christians, we don't need to be blame shifters. Our blame has already been shifted to Jesus Christ himself who bore it once for all. Indeed, we are marked by the opposite. We are people whose entire life is one of repentance. This is what Martin Luther said in the very first of the theses that he posted uh, in the 95 Theses, that the entire life of the believer is one of repentance rather than blame shifting. To be a Christian is for us to admit daily, mia culpa. Every day we say, it is my fault, I am to blame, and my sin is shameful. This we can do because we know we are assured that Christ has once for all taken it. And so we don't shift the blame. So the second point, what we do do, (laughs) what we ought to do to stand fast against temptation. Rather than blame shifting, you and I who would stand fast against sin, we address sin at its root. What we ought to do is address our sin at the very root of our sin. I mean, think about it. In order to stand fast against Temptation, you have to address it at its root. When you think about it, if you want a yard that uh, doesn't have any weeds, you have to pluck out the weeds at the root. You know, you've been there where you pick the, the weeds out and the, you just grab the, 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 the leaves and the roots fell down in there and you're like, ah, oh, it's too hard, I'm, I'll just leave it, it'll probably go away. And then two days later, it's bigger than ever. We have to deal with our sin at the root. Verse 14 tells us that each person is tempted when he is lured or or dragged 
and enticed by his own desire. You see, the root that we must deal with is our desires, our sinful desires. Now, we know that desire of itself is not a bad thing. God created us to love. God created us beings full of, capable of joy and great desire. That said, most of the time that the scriptures talk about desire, it speaks of evil desires, sinful desires, or lust. And while desire is good, I mean, we can just read the book of Song of Solomon. We are all born with disordered, distorted affections. I mean, think about it by way of an analogy. A fire in the fireplace is a good thing. But if you put a fire on the sofa, that is a bad thing. And here's the thing. Since the fall of Adam and Eve, all of us are inclined, are distorted in our affections, so that we gravitate actually to put the fire on the sofa. We have to deal with our sin at the root. In college, uh, my college dorm, there was a, a guy who professed to be a Christian, and he was down the hall a bit. And in his room, he had a, a poster of a woman, and it wasn't one of those posters of you know, your grandmother knitting. It was a different kind of poster. And so I said, hey, you're a Christian. I'm a Christian. Like, why do you have that poster? And his response was, well, I'm just appreciating the beauty of God's handiwork. Okay, pause. I mean, true. A woman's beauty, a man's attractiveness is intrinsically good. It is innocent. Beauty itself does not make us sin. But Dan Doriani states the problem well. He says, approval of beauty becomes desire for beauty. And desire for beauty becomes lust for beauty. So where does the fault lie? With the beauty created by God and tended to by the woman? No. It lies with the man who so readily turns his approval to lust. And that's how we get my friend's poster on the wall. The point is that I'm trying to make here is that our desires turn easily to evil so that we can readily turn something that is good in itself into evil. And so we have to address sin at our root of desires. Why? James gives us an even more compelling reason why. The answer is is in one word. It's death. Death. See, in verse 12, standing in trials before, it meant to bring the crown of life. If you stand, there's the bringing of the crown of life. But being dragged into temptation leads only to death. It's the death of joy and love and character and the eternal death. Verse 14 and 15. Each person is tempted when he is dragged away and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. By way of an analogy, we see something similar uh, with people who adopt Baby pet wild animals. I know there's a, there, there's a desire to have like a pet uh, squirrel. My, my sister had a pet wild squirrel for a, a year in college. 
because it was cute. Or maybe a pet baby raccoon because they're just so cute and cuddly. You may have heard of the family that had a pet raccoon that also had a baby. And when their daughter, Charlotte, was three months old, the raccoon, as it had grown up, crawled into her crib and ate away part of her face from her nose to her ear. It was astounding that she survived. You see, oh, it's just a cute little baby raccoon and it's going to grow up. Not my, little, not my raccoon wouldn't do that. It's a pet. You see, cute baby raccoons, they grow into adult raccoons. People say, that's a wild animal. And we say, oh, no, no, not, not my pet. But they climb into the crib and they wreak destruction. This is what our desires do. Maybe you've heard about um, the show Tiger King. I did not watch it because uh, it's a train wreck. Um, and in Tiger King, there's a guy named Joe Exotic who is a tiger breeder. Um, and he breeds baby tiger cubs, which are adorable because they're orange and black, cute little kittens. But we know that tiger cubs grow up to be big tigers. And one day, a big tiger tears off one of the worker's arms in the show. See, desire is what James says. When it has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it has fully grown, brings forth death. The real story here is that in Joe Exotic, he nurses his anger against a tiger lady named Carol Baskins. And his anger grows up. He plots his, her death, leading to his imprisonment. See, we must address sin at its root. Because if we don't, the result is death. Death of joy, death of love, now, death of our character, death all around us, eternal spiritual death. We know how important it is to deal with sin at its root. We good? Yeah, okay. So what does this mean for us? For our anger now? For our lust now? The things that we struggle with now? You see, quarantine has brought out so many frazzled anger and frustration with disobedient children or nagging parents or irritating spouses. We're angry about our canceled summer plans. We're angry that there's no graduation. There's so many things that we're angry about right now. There's righteous anger from Psalm 4.4 and Ephesians 4.26. There's right anger against the string of injustices committed against black people and of the death of our brother in Christ, George Floyd. There's right anger against looting, which detracts from the protesters who have needed to be heard. There is right anger that 110,000 people in our country have died from COVID-19. There is right anger about food scarcity and joblessness. But here's the thing that we ought to remember. Our right anger, wherever it may exist, our right desires, they easily turn to evil. My righteous anger is easily turned into sinful hate and fear and oppression. And we're in the middle of an outrage culture which just confirms and affirms us and saying, yeah, your, your anger is righteous. I say, my anger is righteous. I don't, I don't know about you, probably not, but at least mine is righteous. And we're confirmed in our righteous anger by our Facebook feeds and our news sources and our thoughts that we tell ourselves. It entices our angry desires so we're dragged into destructiveness. But Psalm 7 says, refrain from anger 
and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. See, God is righteously outraged much more than you and I. Fret not. And so deal with our angry desires that are not righteous at the root. See, in order to stand, we must address the evil in our desires that drags us away because we know that our right desires and our right anger easily turns to evil. Unlike God. So the last point, which is our real application, how? How do we stand fast and deal with the sin that is systemic within us? How do we do it? The answer is the word of truth. It is the word of truth. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. His word brings us to life. His word brings us a new heart and renews our desires by the work of His Holy Spirit. James 1.18, it says this, Of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth. He brought us forth by the word of truth. See, by God's powerful decree, by His Word, it brings us forth to life. Gives us new desires, new life. And Paul in Ephesians and Peter and 1 Peter state that the Word of truth is the gospel which was preached to you. We need this gospel, this Word of truth, because you and I know that our desires are easily deceived. We even sometimes want to be deceived. And this is why just before this verse, in verse 16, James says, do not be deceived, my brothers and sisters. Because we know that our desires are easily deceived and deceive us. See, we believe the lie. We believe the lie that sin is not really that bad and that God is not really that good. Otherwise, why would we still long for it? The crafty serpent whispers to Eve, you will not surely die. It's not that bad. Eat, you'll be like God. It's actually good. God is holding out on you. He's not that good. We believe the lie that sin is not that bad and that God is not that good. But the gospel corrects our deception. Sin is actually worse than you and I have thought, but God is better than you and I could ever imagine. This is what the word of truth tells us. Sin is worse. The principalities and powers, the world, the flesh, and the devil conspire to kill the Son of God. The prophets cry out repeatedly in Scripture that there is no justice, and we cry out ourselves within us, wretched man that I am. What, what, what I want to do, I don't, and that what I wish I could do, I don't. See, the word is not a flattering friend. It tells it to you straight that you are more sinful and the world is more broken than you you know. But the gospel, it shows you that by faith in Christ Jesus, God becomes for us a better father than you and I could ever imagine. He is a better father. Don't be deceived, verse 17 says, 16 and 17, every good And every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation of shadow due to change. 
You see, in Christ Jesus, God becomes for us a better father. A better father. There's a true story about a, a father who took his children to Disneyland. He said, we're going to Disneyland. I got you this great gift of these tickets. We're going. So they show up at the hotel in Disneyland and there's these big pictures of of Disneyland at the hotel and the kids are going excited and crazy and they're loving it and they're playing around. And then all of a sudden the dad, when they're at the hotel, says, okay kids, it's time to go to Disneyland, to the park. And the kids are just like, what? This isn't Disneyland? You see... Even in believing that our Father is good, we still underestimate His his gifts and His fatherly goodness. He gives every good and every perfect gift, and He does not change. His fatherly face shines upon you with unchanging goodness. Every good thing comes from Him. The word of truth tells us that God is a better father than we can imagine. And this is how we stand against the deception of our desires. The love of God which arises from the knowledge of His great fatherly care for you. That is the axe that cuts sinful desires at the root. That's how you and I will ultimately stand against temptation and receive the crown of life. The love for God which comes from knowing of His great fatherly love for us. In early high school, I had been dragged away by my internal anger, pride, my lust, and I had become its captive. It was precisely because I had been willingly deceived, thinking that my sin wasn't as bad as it was. And it tore me up and I could hide it really well. And I remember one Sunday morning in high school, I was dragged to church against my will by my parents, which I'm grateful for now. And I sat in the chair, and I heard the gospel, and I heard the scriptures read, and it cut me. And it cut me deep. But God, by His Word and His Spirit, brought forth this new life in me, and I realized that God was, in fact, a better Father who is the source of every good Sing, thing, and every good and perfect gift. He brought forth this new change in my life. You see, while our love for God is always imperfect in this life, this love for God is the axe laid to the root of our sinful desires. And by His gracious Holy Spirit, by His word of truth, He brings forth this love into our hearts. And He does it. And He does it by His grace. So let me pray.